Maybe the best way to start this literature review is the old saying that success is a measure as decided by others, whereas satisfaction is a measure as decided by you. And there was a study that came out in February of 2020, which I don't think most hospitalists or nurses or whoever are going to be too surprised about, but it was kind of nice to see that what we think is actually true, which is patient satisfaction scores really don't have much to do with medical quality nor mortality rates and much more had to do with amenities and hospitality experiences. So things like hallway noise or being in a private room how fast nurses and doctors and CNAs respond to requests. Those things were much more important in patient satisfaction than medical quality or mortality rates. And this study was based on CMS data from 3,000 U.S. hospitals. So I think we can trust the data, and basically this is a very old idea just showing itself once again, meaning even Mahatma Gandhi once said, Satisfaction lies in the effort, not in the attainment. Full effort is full victory. And not surprisingly, patients don't really know mortality rates or how smart their doctor is. What they do notice is how long it takes when they push the call button or how cold their food is, if it's been sitting out in the hallway for an hour and a half before it gets to them. All right, so moving along, there was a study out of JAMA which spoke to me personally because my residents often tell me, boy, you order a lot less consults than a lot of the other teaching physicians and physicians that we train under. For example, someone comes in with a creatinine of 8. If I don't think it's ATN or something that we're definitely going to need dialysis for quickly, I will try and reverse that on my own without nephrology and usually will succeed. So when this study, based on 700,000 admissions at 700-plus hospitals treated by more than 14,500 hospitalists, said that we should reconsider how often we are consulting, it caught my eye that the consult-heavy hospitalists don't have better mortality rates or fewer readmissions than their colleagues. What consult-heavy hospitalists do have is an association with greater use of healthcare resources, higher costs, increased length of stay, which makes sense because now you're waiting around for other consults to sign off and say it's okay for the patient to go home. Not to mention all the studies and procedures that sometimes get ordered in the inpatient setting that can be done as an outpatient. And that's not to say we shouldn't be consulting specialists. Of course we should. There's plenty of appropriate times where we should, but just like our excesses of youth catch up with us, just remember that there is higher costs associated with this. And if you are, for instance, caring about the first study that we talked about, where you want better amenities and nursing ratios and things like that, if you are one of those people that's causing too high of a cost for too many patients, those things are not as available to the next set of patients because hospitals run on budgets. And the way the DRG system is set up is if you keep a pneumonia patient for two days or two weeks, the hospital gets the same reimbursement. So the answer is consult appropriately, not excessively.
All right, the next thing I'm going to jump to is not from a study, it's really from a commentary from the American Journal of Medicine. And this was from an article titled, 20 Common Mistakes Made Daily in Clinical Practice. And I think a bunch of us could write an article like this almost every day off the top of our heads. You know, one thing I am seeing, which has nothing to do with this article, but it's driving me nuts, is that with the electronic health record, Everybody who smokes is getting 21 milligram patches for nicotine for replacement, which is fine if you smoke a lot, but for those smokers who really are cut down to only three, five, six cigarettes a day, they're getting nicotine poisoning, and then the day team doesn't even recognize that. So basically what's happening is these patients are anxious and jittery and not sleeping well and nauseous, and now you're looking for a bunch of other things, and it's what we did to them. We put on a 21 milligram patch. Like, If you wanna know what they feel like, just put in a huge dip of chewing tobacco throughout your mouth and see how you feel in about five minutes. You'll feel exactly those symptoms I just described if you're not a smoker or regular nicotine user. But rather than take a really good history about smoking before we order it, we just kind of automatically order it. And I have seen nicotine replacement used as a quality measure. And I think that's actually disturbing too. My personal feeling on nicotine is that both the patches and the gum, which I do order, but I order PRN, meaning if the patient is feeling withdrawal symptoms, or the nurse feels it would be beneficial of that day to have it, great, it should be available. I'm not trying to withdraw everybody. But on the other hand, all these patients coming in with their cardiovascular disease, COPD exacerbation, you know, all kinds of things, isn't this a perfect time to quit? But instead, what we do is we keep them addicted to nicotine with sometimes higher levels than they're used to if we give them too high of a dose of patch, and then we tell them to quit when they leave the hospital. Doesn't really make sense to me. Perfect time to quit in the hospital. Well, as usual, I digress. So getting back to the American Journal of Medicine article from January of 2020, where it's 20 common mistakes made in daily clinical practice, I only want to point out one because it does matter to me because I think it's still a major falsehood that so many hospitalists and internists and multiple other people still believe. And that's that if you diurese patients in heart failure, with an elevated blood creatinine that you're going to increase the creatinine and the renal failure. And as I pointed out on a past podcast, I think it was Internal Medicine Pearls number five, where I talk about diuretic therapy, that is just not true. Sometimes that happens, but to quote the American Journal of Medicine article, the author says, often the opposite occurs and the creatinine falls and the engorged kidney related to the cardiorenal syndrome improves in patients with heart failure. Vigorous diuresis will improve renal function. Now, why does this matter? Because this myth keeps propagating. In fact, it was recently in an article in Today's Hospitalist where an expert said you have to be very careful in diuresing heart failure patients with AKI or acute renal failure because you will usually make it worse. And I actually wrote that guy an email and he never responded to me other than thank you for your opinion. That's what he wrote. But while I may be repeating myself if I said this in a previous podcast, one, what other choice do you have? So someone comes in, they're totally edematous, have pulmonary edema, aren't breathing well, 
What's your choices other than to diurese them if they're in heart failure? Well, your choices are you can diurese them, and if you are unlucky and they are unlucky and that does make the kidneys worse, then you have to do dialysis if they want to be aggressive with their care. The other option is to do dialysis right away. I don't know of a third option. I don't know, bloodletting? So one way or the other, you've got to get the fluid off, meaning there is a long-term option if you're trying to make the heart stronger with ACE inhibitors or whatever, but that is not going to happen in a hospitalization, meaning you have to get the fluid off now if you want somebody to breathe with pulmonary edema from heart failure. So I appreciate that Dr. William Frischman and Dr. Joseph Alpert wrote this article. They have a lot of other good points if you want to read that. Okay, so moving along, I want to talk about another article I read. Again, this one not coming from a medical journal, but I thought it was so well done in how they explained it in the New York Times in December 13th of 2019. thought I would share it with you. So the title of the article is Tramadol is an Odd unpredictable opioid, scientists say. And I think it's fair to say that we're probably seeing more and more tramadols. People are trying to move away from morphine and oxycodone and things that, for good reason, we don't want to use. And then I also think it's safe to say that most of us have realized that sometimes tramadol works really well for some people and works very poorly for some people. And the reason for that is, other than maybe abuse issues and other things like that, is that tramadol is unlike most other opioids in that it first has to pass through the liver to be metabolized into its potent form. And then at the same time, it's releasing an antidepressant, meaning serotonin in the brain, which elevates mood. But the thing is, is that how much opioid and how much antidepressant of serotonin is released is very, very heavily dependent on the genetics of the patient. And this is a double-edged sword, meaning that sometimes you're not going to get pain relief, but on the other hand, if you are one of the ethnic groups that's prone to processing tramadol into a far more potent opioid much more of the time, you're upping the risk of addiction in that group. And so we've noticed in the literature, maybe with your patients, that also there's other times where it can be a big respiratory depressant when it's combined with other drugs. And we're kind of surprised by that because we've seen so many people who are on it that are fine. And then there's this one person who takes it with a mild benzo or whatever and has respiratory depression. And it may be that they're part of the ethnic group that increases the opioid amount of release after they metabolize it in the liver. The other thing too, I think most of us know, though I still have to remind a few people here and there, is that tramadol has often been associated with lowering the seizure threshold. So that and like Wellbutrin and things like, I tend to stop them if people have had seizures and they take this medication. I guess I should say bupropion and not Wellbutrin since I do try and use generic names. But anyway, I think there's a few reasons why tramadol lowers the seizure threshold. But one thing to keep in mind is that the seizure can be caused from an overload of serotonin. So I think we almost always are prescribing this drug with the idea that it's a painkiller and kind of like a mild opioid, which is true for some people. Some people doesn't work at all for because they don't metabolize it into an opioid. And then people who metabolize it 
into too much opioid, but at the same time, we're not thinking about that this is a drug that can cause release of serotonin. And of course, we know that with serotonin in excess amounts, we can get things like serotonin syndrome and seizures from an overload of serotonin. But there's also an important corollary to that, which is if you stop tramadol cold turkey, you have a new set of problems. So yes, you have the problems of opioid withdrawal. So you can get your sweating, your diarrhea, your insomnia, your upset patient who's now in more pain. But how many of you are really thinking about the serotonin crash that happens when you stop tramadol? Meaning serotonin, when you stop it abruptly, can cause panic, paranoia, confusion, and in the worst case, hallucinations. So let me give you another scenario. We always are admitting patients with altered mental status. I think that's part of every hospitalist world. How many of you are thinking about whether that patient withdrew from tramadol because they ran out three days ago because they used too much of their prescription earlier in the month, and maybe their altered mental status is that they need tramadol? And that's why I think altered mental status is one of the hardest things to admit because Oftentimes we see that they're on medications and we hold them thinking maybe that's causing the mental status issue. But of course, stopping abruptly a lot of medications, whether it's tramadol or baclofen or Neurontin or SSRIs, when we can go down the list, can actually make mental status worse. And maybe that's what happened at home. Or it could be the opposite. Maybe they had too much tramadol, had a seizure or in a postictal state. Very challenging clinical scenarios. Okay, well, that's probably enough for today. You've been listening to the Hospital Medicine Podcast. This is Dr. Gil Parat, and I will catch you on the next round.